Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you all. Or y'all. can't say you all. Um, it is a, it's a blessing to be able to come and to open the scriptures with you this morning uh, and to uh, speak as to what God would have us hear. Um, uh, Pastor Jeff is, has left this week to go and spend time uh, at the Acts 29 uh, pastors gathering, uh, uh, lead pastor gathering that they do uh, once a year. And so I'll be praying for him. Uh, see and Natalie are there this week. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I found out a, uh, two or three weeks ago what passage I'd be preaching on this morning. And uh, as I really began digging into the passage and this week really began to spend time uh, I, I started to consider what is, the, what is a good, what's a good illustration to really bring home this issue in James chapter 2 of partiality and favoritism in the church. Because even as on an initial reading, I, I knew uh, there's really a lot that can come under this umbrella of favoritism, of, of wrongful discrimination. So I thought, what can I point to in our culture, in our, uh, in our church maybe, that would highlight this issue of partiality uh, that lies in the human heart. And as I was seeking the right illustration, really just going, man, how am I going to really draw this together? Tuesday happened uh, with the death of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. And then the next day, Wednesday, another death, uh, Philando Castile just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. And then as the nation uh, dealt and the Christian church dealt with all sorts of uh, emotions and, and opinions and thoughts as to how, how should we consider this? How do we properly grieve these, these things? How do, we probably, how, how do we rightly speak about them? A lot of anger and fear and, and, and even, even uh, frankly, just even differing perspectives, even throughout a church body like ours. Um, and then after only a day to really consider, then Thursday happened. And you maybe like myself, sat Thursday night watching as the news rolled in, watching as one by one, 12 Dallas police officers uh, were targeted and shot, five of them killed uh, by an angry, hate-filled gunman. And what did they do? They, they were running to the chaos, right? Running to, seeking to protect civilians who were protesting and not knowing that they themselves were the target. And so in God's sovereignty, uh, this morning we get to talk about something that I believe very much fits in line with some of the things of our day. And additionally, in God's sovereignty, maybe in his humor, he's got me preaching on it, um, but hopefully <laughs> the Lord will be gracious to us all. Um, but we're going to talk this morning about what we see in James chapter 2 in this, this heinous issue of partiality amongst the people and in the hearts of the people of God. Uh, so here's what I want to do, and here's what I don't want to do. First, I, I want to stick to the text. Um, I don't want to read something into the text and be hijacked by current issues um, be, just because uh, it's something going on. At the same time, I do believe that God might speak to our hearts as what we, in what we consider as what James is talking about here. I think there's something for us to hear 
that really pertains to some of what we've been dealing with in this evil called partiality. So if you would, let's read the text together. Uh, We're going to read in James chapter 2. So would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. And let's follow along with me in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me pray for us. Father, would you be so kind to us this morning? God, that we might look into the mirror of your word and that we might see your exalted Son, Jesus, there. That we might see our sin, our fallenness, our wickedness, flesh, that still is our sinful nature needing to be put to death. And would you call us by your Spirit into uh, union with Christ in the way that we view and treat those around us. Father, would you this morning, in your great mercy, place your hands upon people who are grieving? Would you be with those in Dallas who have lost loved ones, many loved ones, who served our country, who served us, and who lost their lives in the process? Would you be with those in Baton Rouge and in Minnesota and others around our country who are suffering and grieving over difficult things that they have a hard time to understand how it could be so? So, Father, lead us as your people to speak well, to say right things, and to speak of your graciousness in all of it. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. <clears throat> we're going to walk through the text this morning. We're going to answer two questions. Number one, what is partiality? And number two, how do we put it to death in our lives? So my brothers, show no partiality. What's partiality? I think we kind of know. It's not a word we use every day, but it's you know something we sort of know. I asked my kids this question at dinner last night. They, they did well. They answered actually... They gave better answers than I expected. They, I, I had to clarify. I said to say favoritism. What I'm talking about is favoritism. And they said, okay, yeah, we know that. Um, yeah, when you pick favorites, yeah, we know what, what it means to be uh, favorites. When, 
uh, one of my children said, when you don't like someone because of their skin color. And that was her answer. We've had, she's heard these conversations lately. Uh, and then a big one, important one, uh, when a friend leaves you out and, and, they, and they won't let you play with them. Bingo. There's favoritism. Uh, when, when your friends won't let you play, that's favoritism. Um, and this, this word partiality, sometimes translated as favoritism, maybe depending upon the translation you have, it's treating someone with an attitude uh, or a heart, treating them better or worse basis on, uh, on the basis of something that shouldn't be the basis. Uh, to show no partiality, this, this word really means to, be, to, to receive one, someone according to the face, uh, to exalt someone based on the face or what appears on the outside. Uh, we do this, don't we? We examine people based on externals. And James is drawing attention to something that in the first century, particularly in the Jewish, the Jewish culture, this was an art form. Uh, it was rampant. They were very clear in distinctions and placing value upon people. And James is saying, there's no place for this in this new church of Christ. There is no place for this now in this new kingdom that God, that Jesus is bringing. Uh, do you remember the, the cliques of your high school? of your, maybe your junior high, maybe, I don't know. I don't know where they'll start, but somewhere along there. Uh, how many really loved that? That was a lot of fun. Um, how, how about, uh, some of you may be in it right now, so we will pray for you. Uh, the, uh, some, of you some of you are probably early enough in your adulthood to where you are still in some sort of like post-high school PTSD uh, to where you're still struggling from the effects of that sort of partiality that's shown uh, the cool kids, the in kids, the, the haves, the have-nots. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, that sort of mentality also comes in the church. And I think it might even be more devastating in the church because in the church, why? We're the family of God. And so we have a perfect loving father and he has called us brothers and sisters, his children. And yet for there to be partiality, for there to be discrimination within the church, uh, this should be a place where that doesn't occur. And so even more devastating, uh, unfortunately, we're not exempt. Uh, I, I praise God, the Redeemer. Uh, you guys love one another so well. Um, I'm often blown away by how much you care for each other, how much you don't do this, but we're not exempt. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He, he's saying you can't hold your faith, the faith of the risen Christ, and be partial. This is an oxymoron. It is antithetical to the gospel. Partiality, sizing someone up based on their social class, their race, their gender. These are not the actions and attitudes of a Christian. Because how does God judge us? According to the heart. Any, any favoritism that judges people according to something external is sin. In fact, we're going to see it in verse 9. He's just going to come out and say it. If you show partiality, you're committing sin. And so it's to flow out of the gospel, our rejection of partiality. And this is where James is going to press us. He's going to use the example of this socioeconomic interaction. But I believe, and I'm going to show later, I, I think this can really be applied much more broadly. Um, this is super practical stuff in the life of the church. It really is just practical, practical daily living the way that we interact with each other. But it's not easy. We need the Spirit's help. Uh, in the church of Jesus, as much as we wish it were not the case Due to sin, we are prone to partiality. We are impressed by things uh, that God is just frankly not impressed with. We are impressed with bank accounts. We are impressed with looks, uh, with style, 
with jobs, with education, with reputation. And God's not, God's not impressed. God looks at the heart. He looks at the inner person. And when we know this about God, why? Because he tells, he tells, this to, he tells us this. Uh, we're going to uh, crush partiality in us and in the church by looking to the Lord of glory. That's, that's verse 1. So we're going to look to the Lord of glory. When you think about the attributes of God, uh, what he is like, uh, his holiness, right? These are the ones you think of. His omniscience, uh, his justice, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his great love, his mercy, his, his grace, his faithfulness, his power, his goodness. But it, it's amazing. There's an attribute we rarely talk about with God, and yet Scripture mentions it a lot. In fact, we, it's all over the place. Have you ever been in a meeting and someone just, we're, we're, we're taking turns thanking God for his attributes? Man, I, thank you for God, for your holiness. Thank you. And God, we thank you for your impartiality. Nobody ever shouts that one out. That's really not the, the popular one. God, we thank you for your impartiality. But God is completely impartial in the way that he deals with people. And in this way, he is utterly unlike us. We are prone to partiality. We put people in classes and categories higher and, or lower than ourselves based on a number of categories. But all these things with God are a non-issue. He sees, he sees nothing uh, but to the heart, right? Second, Second Chronicles 19 for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality. Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not impartial. I mean, he's, Moses is talking about the great God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the impartial. Not the word you expected to be at the end of the sentence. Uh, this is how he wants to communicate God's greatness. He's impartial. Malachi, Malachi 2.9. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instructions. He's, God's saying, I judge you because you're showing partiality because of your bigotry. And, and so he's saying, this is not like me. You are not behaving in a manner of my character. We see in the New Testament, Peter, as he shares the gospel with Cornelius, uh, he, a Gentile, he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, anyone can come. There is no favoritism with God, no matter what nation, no matter what race. Paul acknowledges the same thing when he talks about the coming judgment of God in Romans 2. He says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So in the matter of judgment, God is impartial. In the matter of the way he sees men and women, he is impartial in his dealings. But we know this. What, we know what the Lord said to Samuel as he referred, talked about David, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks to the heart. Paul hits it again in Ephesians when he talks to slaves and masters. He says, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So he speaks to these who would have slaves and he says to them, you are, you, you are to be impartial as, as the Lord is because there's, no there's no partiality with him. Even, even when we talk about in the New Testament, bringing a charge against the elder, Against an elder, what does it say? It says there should be two witnesses. This is essentially what happens in the New Testament with anyone. That you approach your brother when he's in sin, and if he doesn't hear you, what do you do? You take two. This is not, he doesn't deal differently with different people. We serve a God who is impartial. 
He is not partial when it comes to disciplining sin, to rebuking his children. First uh, Peter 1, uh, Peter quotes God's words. He's saying, be holy as I am holy. <clears throat> and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he's, 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 he's appealing to God's impartiality for how they're to live. We keep going. This is like a theme just throughout Scripture that God does not deal with partiality with his people. He is impartial. So how do we crush partiality in our lives? We look to the character of God. He is impartial. But then look at one more thing here about God at the end of this passage, uh, at the end of of verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is incredible. This is some, Jesus is saying something pretty amazing here about, or James is saying pretty amazing, something amazing about Jesus. He's saying he's the Lord of glory. So hold your faith without partiality because it's faith in the Lord of glory. He could have said our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, the Lord of love. But he says, as you hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And as, as I read this, actually a lot of commentators say that to even say, call him the Lord of glory here is probably over-translating. It really is just to say, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, that he is the glory. Such a strange and yet amazing title that James is giving to Jesus here. Remember, James is a, is, is a Jewish uh, believer. He has come out of the Jewish church. He is, a, he is known, he's the, probably the pastor of the first real Jewish Christian congregation in Jerusalem, uh, the brother of Jesus. He's a devout Jew. Uh, he would have known the Old Testament. He knew what he was saying here. And he's talking about glory. The Greek word he uses, doxa, is also the same word that's used when referring to the Hebrew kabod, which means heaviness or weight. And so importance, value. In just a minute, a, a rich man's going to walk through in the story. And he's going to display his importance, his significance, how much he matters. And while the rich man shows forth his glory, and the poor man shows his lack of glory. James is saying, you know what? Jesus is the glory. His glory is immense. Far more lasting than the richest man in the world. His glory is perfect. It's lasting. God's glory in the Old Testament was found in the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, this translucent bright cloud lit from within. And what was it? It was simply God's way of saying, here is my presence. I am here. Here's my power on display for people to see. And this was terrifying, but also comforting, also appealing and and attractive. In fact, Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. He wants to see him, wants to see him more. And and God's saying, that's not going to be good for you if I show you that. Um, Have you ever ever sat in an old chair uh, or maybe one of your children's chairs? Uh, we have this chair at the office. It's like a, it's some sort of weird, like molded, molded, like I'm gonna say wooden chair, but it's probably plastic now that I'm thinking about it. But it's it's this chair, and the chair is, it looks cool. It probably came from some like, it probably from IKEA. I don't know. It's it looks kind of cool, but it uh, it looks cool. And but in, and and when you actually like put your back into it just a little bit, bam, gone. Chair's over. And uh, we had two in the office, and now we have one. Uh, and uh, my glory outshone the chair. It was brighter than the chair. Uh, we, 
It, the, the, the bottom of the chair was just fine, like the seat, but the back did not like it. Uh, but this is, this is what happens when something of great glory comes into contact uh, with something of less weight and less glory. Uh, the chair gets crushed. Uh, God is all glorious. And amazingly, the Bible says he's crowned us with glory, giving weight and honor and importance to us as part of his creation. But his glory outshines ours. His glory outshines the rich man. We are sinners. He is perfect and glorious. So James is saying something pretty astonishing here. He's saying, how could any Christian show partiality to another person if you've come into contact with the glory? If you've come into contact with Jesus Christ, the one of all glory, how could you look at someone else, at the rich man with his gold fingers, and not say, that just pales in comparison to the glory of God. Jesus is the radiance of God. Hebrews says he's the exact image of God's glory. He is his glory. He is the cloud. He is the pillar of fire. This means you want to know about the wisdom of God? You look to Jesus, his wisdom. You want to know about the love of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God? You see Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He shows us the glory of God. And when you do see his glory, your glory is eclipsed. No rich man compares to him. He crushes lesser glories. The glory of riches, of possessions, of other people will be eclipsed. And think about this man that's calling him glory, right? It's, it's his brother. This is a guy who was raised with him. A guy who, who probably played with him, who probably slept and ate with him. And he's saying, I've seen this guy and I believe. So we look at the Lord. We see his perfect impartiality in the scriptures and we see that his glory outshines all other glories. So how else do we crush partiality? We consider our fellow man. Uh, and just as a side note, if you serve with our greeters, this is, a great note, this is a great passage about greeting. Not really, I don't know if that's what it's written for, but it's a good one. Um, check out this picture. This is a great greeting scenario. Uh, James, uh, here in verse 2, he paints this picture. He's going to give us a scenario about partiality. In verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with the evil thoughts? So let's see what he's telling us here. There's two people coming in to the gathering, right? Two people walking in. One of them comes up, comes in literally with gold fingers is what the passage is saying. This isn't like James Bond. This is like he's got like lots of bling on. He's, he's, he's showing it. Um, Mr. T walks in and he is decked out with all the jewels, all the gold. Uh, I mean, a, a poor Jewish person would likely uh, have, have possibly, they probably would have had a ring, but it wouldn't have been a gold ring. Uh, and they definitely wouldn't have gold fingers. There wouldn't have been lots of gold going on. Um, but this guy's coming in a classier, shinier version of Mr. T. Uh, he walks in full with his shiny clothes. He's a man of weightiness and power, displaying his importance. And remember, these are Jewish believers, so it would have been commonplace uh, in the synagogue for them to have favored the wealthy, for them to have said, here, this, this, this person of high status, sit here. This person of great wealth, sit here. The Pharisees and the scribes they were, and, the, and the Sadducees, they were, they were good at this. This is what they did. This is how they exerted their power. They got the great seats. They got the, the, the favored place. And so then another man comes in, less majesty, less influence, less power, 
This guy's showing it in his clothes and the way he carries himself. He was probably a beggar. His clothes are shabby. They're probably the only clothes he has. And of course, they allow him to come in. This is the church of Jesus. There are many who are poor here. But notice the distinctions. You, rich man, sit here. You, poor man, sit there. Sit in the back. Sit down at my feet. Rich man, I want you near me here. I want you associated with me. They paid attention to the first man. That's what it says. This is how the patronage system works. This is how it was in the early first century. Uh, you, I, I pay attention to you. You have lots of money. You help me. I give you a good seat at the, at the gathering. Uh, you, you pay it forward or pay it backward to me uh, later on. I am receiving uh, the benefit of being associated with you. So these two people come in, and they're two people on different places on the important scale in the world. And James is, show, is saying, don't treat these people differently. Don't show partiality. In fact, this word right here, the, the, the word partiality we talked about earlier, the word partiality is actually a plural word. Uh, it's actually partialities, or it could be maybe favoritisms. Uh, that's, that wouldn't really sound right in our English language, so it's not translated that way. But it really is it's, it's plural. It's more than one thing. It, 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 this is a sample case, a church where, where people with money are favored over those who don't. But this isn't the only sort of partiality there is. Uh, James is dealing with all sorts of partialities, all types of favoritisms. They're all wrong. And you may say, I'm, I'm not rich. You know, I don't think I, we're, you know, we're, I don't think I have that problem. I don't look at rich people that way. And uh, our, our mission community is working through uh, uh, Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods and just and God's sovereignty again this week where we read the chapter on the idol of money. Uh, praise God that he does things like this. Uh, and Keller gives this crazy stat. He said that only 2% of the people in the U.S. consider themselves wealthy. That means everyone feels a lot poorer than they really are, right? So money is always a temptation. Everybody always thinks, now nah, I'm not the one that has enough yet. So that's always going to be there. That's going to be here now. That was there then. It's, 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 it's a temptation. But what about the church where the majority race is favored over others? What about a church or in your heart where the cool, the trendy, the, the personality, the, the, the one that is attractive, the connected, the one that they're clearly favored over the unattractive, the uncool, the disconnected. And I'm not making this passage say this. So I, again, I want to come back to that. This is where this passage goes because this word favoritism, it's used in a couple other places in the New Testament. You know how it's used? It's always used where there's racist distinction being made, where there's ethnic distinction and partiality occurring. Romans 2, uh, verse 11, uh, when, when speaking of discrimination between Greeks and Jews, Paul says, God shows no partiality. So, so it's, it's there too. It's money in one place. It's ethnicity in the other. And, but neither of those are really the issue. The issue is partiality. The issue is saying that I, I am, uh, that you are somehow different or worse uh, than me. I am determining your value based on externals. And God says this is wrong. Verse 4, have you not made, then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This sort of partiality within the church is evil. He's calling it evil. When I show partiality as a Christian, I'm looking at my fellow man made in the image of Christ, and I have put myself in a position I don't deserve. I've made myself the judge. I've, I've used a standard that God's not giving me to use to, to be, is, is he rich? Is he cool? Is he the right race? 
I'm playing favorites and I'm doing so for myself. James is saying when you do that, you're just like the world, the sinful world, catering to the rich, to the prominent, to the ones who look like you, to the ones who are esteemed in the world's eyes. In fact, in James 3, he's, he's going to talk more about the tongue. And he's going to say this. He says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So this takes us back to Genesis. Mankind, male and female, created in the image of God. Each man, each woman has dignity because they're made in the image of God. And if you, James is saying, if you insult others, if you treat the poor man as something less, you don't understand the image of God. In our country, we, we're, we're all about this. We believe everybody has rights. Uh, why? Well, because the Constitution says so. But why? Well, because, you know, it's right. No, it's, it's, it's right because it's, it's the way God works. It's right because he has created us with that sort of uh, distinction and dignity in, in, that, that a person is worth the, the, being treated as an image bearer of God. And, and there have, I mean, we, we, when we think like, yeah, well, everyone has always thought that. That's not, that's not the case. Civilization after civilization has not worked that way, have operated with conclusions uh, that other people are, are less than, are not valuable to say. Um, and when we operate in our flesh, we can come to the same conclusions to say, uh, those people, uh, what good are, are they? You can't trust them. They always fill in the blank. And our, our, our country, we recognize this as an evil. And it's okay. Like when, when our country recognizes something as evil, I, I want to encourage us as Christians for us not to have the reflex to go, well, they got to be wrong. Because God, God is, a, there is, there is much common grace on the people of God that, that there are sinful people who will have right thoughts. And so as Christians, we have to discern and say, yeah, you're right. You're wrong. You're wrong in the way you think it. You're wrong in maybe the way, place it comes from, but you're right. That all people are worthy of dignity and worthy to be treated as image bearers of God. But, but, but James is going to, he's showing us the law is not going to really fix this. Our constitution is not going to fix it um, because what we do flows out of who we are. In, in uh, Romans chapter 15, right here at the end of Romans, uh, Paul says this. He says, may the endurance, encouragement, or may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And how did Christ welcome you into the family of God? Without partiality. So we have to kill partiality, put it to death, by receiving our brothers and our sisters and even those outside of the body of Christ as those who are made in the image of God. So next, as we seek to kill partiality and put it to death and crush it, uh, we have to consider the family of God. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. This is like a, a, he's talking to them in a very pastoral loving way. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God chose the poor to be rich in faith. So what does this mean? James is saying, look around. Look at the body of Christ. We are the poor. In fact, Christianity has historically been a blue-collar, middle-class, and lower-class faith. 
And Paul said, in fact, to the Corinthians, he said, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the, the wise and the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Heaven is not going to be a, a frat party. It's not going to be People Magazine. It's not going to be celebrity gazing. Uh, it's going to be the meek inheriting the earth, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The poor are those who are often likely to be converted. They can understand unmerited favor. They can comprehend grace. They need good news. They aren't interested in hip, cool Christianity, not looking to be entertained. No, oftentimes they are the ones in the, in, at the end of themselves. And because of it, they are able to hear the gospel. And this has historically been the case. Think about a funeral. Pastor Jeff mentioned this a couple weeks ago that he, he, li- he likes doing funerals more than weddings. And we all laughed and thought, that's scary. Um, and, uh, but don't, and don't help him out in that. Like nobody had given him business. But, the, <laughs> but uh, at funerals, right, people are, are sad. Uh, they're upset. They're grieving. Uh, depression, disorientation, uh, trying to make sense of life. And then afterwards, everyone goes back to life. They go back to doing their thing, uh, and, and, uh, and sadness goes away. That moment of grief is, is not long, um, depending upon the, the closeness of the relation to the person who died. And, um, but it may be one of the only times, and this is where I think Jeff nails it, this is, he may be, it may be one of the only times in life where, where people are overwhelmed by the fact that life is fragile. Life is fleeting. Life could be over tomorrow for any of us. I think a lot of us probably are there when we're, when we're watching things like what happened on Thursday happen. We're going, man, I, my life could be over tomorrow. And we're seeing injustice in the world and going, I, 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 I'm not promised another breath. When we have health problems and we go, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I, I'm going to make it to tomorrow. And, and, but often those feelings go away. 9-11 was 15 years ago. Um, and the feelings went away. Most of the time we live as though life is uh, not fleeting. Uh, life, life will go on forever, but it is fleeting. We are going to die. And many times I think the poor are more clear about, about this than the rest of us. They are the outcast, the disabled. They feel this regularly. I think a lot of times we, we can't think about this clearly because things are good. Things are okay. We think this life that I've built here, I've worked hard. I got my degree. I it's my great character and my hard work that got me here. Uh, but if you were born in the slums of another part of the world, you, you wouldn't think that about yourself because you would have no option for those things. You, with your life, in, in some way, you're able to look at your life and say, I, I've done this. I went to the school. I put in the work. I, I've earned this. But, but think about when you came to faith. Or maybe, maybe if, if, if that's been a while, Think about a, a key time when you grew in your faith. Was it right after you landed the big deal? Was it right after you got your dream house? After you got that promotion? After when, was it right when all your dreams were coming true? Or was it right when you lost the job? Was it right at the time when you failed? When your friends deserted you? When your dreams went up in smoke? Well, guess what? The dreams already were smoke. They already were fleeting. 
They already are vapor, just like we read in Ecclesiastes. And, and, and the reality is we're blinded to that reality, but the poor are not. Often they are in touch with it. And the gospel comes in and says, this world is messed up. People are sinful. It's fallen. You are sinful. And the poor often will respond to that and say, yeah, you're right. I know that. I see that. But sometimes we sit in our comfortable lives and our comfortable houses and we say, I don't know. Life seems pretty good. That's why I love the line from uh, the old hymn, The Solid Rock. It's one of my favorite hymns. It says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust in Jesus' name. And that line reminds me that there is no life here for me to trust in. Even the best scenario of my life, the best, sweetest picture frame hanging on my wall in my house, showing me this, the most perfect moment of this earthly life is not trustworthy. I can't rest. The, the full weight of my hope won't, won't be held up by it because it is fleeting. It is passing. Only Christ can satisfy. Only Christ is my hope. Uh, look, look around at us. I, I, don't, I don't know what everybody gives at Redeemer. In fact, we decided early on that the elders, our pastors, would not know that. Um, and, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but we're a ragtag bunch of folks. I'm, I know we have some who do fine financially. Uh, we have many others who are scraping by week to week. Uh, in the early days, if, if some of you are around in the early days of Redeemer, uh, you may have met Paul Helbig. He was here and he helped, with, uh, helped us plant the church. And Paul used to refer to Redeemer as a bunch of misfits. And uh, like the island of misfit toys, just a bunch of cast-offs gathering together, uh, coming together to worship Jesus. Not much in the world's eyes, uh, but a group of people that love Jesus. And so if you're coming to Redeemer, or, or for that matter, if you're coming to any church, but if you're coming to Redeemer just so that you can rub shoulders with the big shots, you'd probably be disappointed. It's probably going to be a letdown. Uh, there are some incredible men and women here, ones that I want to pattern my life and my faith after. And they may not have fat bank accounts, but as James says here, they are rich in faith. They are heirs of the kingdom. And that's all the church has ever been. So if anyone should show favoritism to those who are great according to the world standards, it can't be us. We are the weak. We are the poor in spirit. And yes, some of us have money. There, there are some of you in the church who have money. There's nothing wrong with that. May you steward it well, may you, but may you hold it with an open hand. May you, may you use it to grow the kingdom, to care for the poor. It's always been the case. There's always been those who have means within the church who followed and served Jesus. There's several examples of this in the New Testament. But these are, these are usually the exception, not the rule. It's difficult, the Bible says, for the rich man, difficult for the powerful, powerful man, for him to truly see and believe that there's something better than this life, that he really is spiritually impoverished. So yes, yeah, some of you are wealthy. Most are not. Some of you are beautiful or handsome. Most of us, we're out of luck. Some of you are very intelligent and wise. Most of us, just average. When Christ comes on the scene, he changes all that. He reverses our status in the world. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man has everything in the world, and Lazarus sits as a beggar at the gate. And then in eternity, it's all flipped over. The rich man realizes his wealth was temporary. It's gone. And the poor man finds pleasure forevermore 
and eternity. Jesus reverses our status. And this is what we see throughout redemptive history, that God and his grace pursuing in particular the poor, not simply because they are poor, but because they are the ones who respond to him. He is the defender of the poor. Psalm 68, in your goodness, you give grace to the poor. So James says, when you neglect the poor, you're negating the very grace and the plan of God. There will be no slums, no shanties in heaven. No, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, to be heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. And so seeing the family of God crushes partiality. What's next? We need to consider our hearts, our sinful hearts, so that partiality might be crushed. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Why does James call it the royal law? Because they came to Jesus, the king, and they asked him, of these 600 some odd laws in the Old Testament, which is the greatest? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on these. They depend on these. Jesus is saying it all comes down to loving the Lord and loving your neighbors. But did you know he was actually quoting two commands? These aren't just like, he didn't just go, I'm going to summarize, give you a summary statement of the law. He said, no, these are the two. Deuteronomy 10, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And look at Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is, is uh, this passage uh, on loving neighbor, but really it's a lot about the poor. Leviticus 19, starting in verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall, shall you judge your neighbor. And he talks for a couple more verses more about the poor. Then in verse 18, he says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you think maybe Jesus, when he said love your neighbor, he might have had the poor in mind? That's exactly the context of this command. And James is saying, you want to fulfill the royal law, the law of this new kingdom that Jesus was talking about? You've got to love your neighbor. You're thinking, well, yeah, I probably do that okay. We all kind of think that. Uh, but James is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. You probably do in some way. Praise God for that. But keep going. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He's saying, you're showing hospitality and loving your neighbor. That's great. But if you're treating any group of people as unworthy of neighborly love, that's sin. James, is he saying you can't have a hierarchy of the different commands of God, murder, adultery. Those are bad, clearly bad. But, you know, ignoring the poor, racism, not loving your neighbor. Everybody makes mistakes. James is saying we can't do that. This is just as serious as any other command. You want to root partiality out of your heart? Think right now. In which facets of, of my life do I show favoritism, partiality, discrimination? This is sin. This is sin. That's what, that's what James is saying. Is it with your children? Is it with some folks that show up at your missional community? Is it with maybe a coworker or a neighbor? When you go to the restaurant, is it the waiter or the waitress? When they get your order wrong, are they all of a sudden someone not to be talked to as an image bearer of God, but now are someone to be condescended to and spoken down to? Racial partiality is a big one right now. Guys, racism is a blight on our nation's history. 
I read a speech this week uh, that was given uh, in 2003 by, by uh, President George W. Bush at the time. Uh, and he's still George W. Bush, but he was president at the time. Um, <laughs> uh, and he, he outlined the horrific uh, beginnings of slavery in our country as he gave a speech from Gory Island, which is uh, just off of the coast of Senegal, I believe. And, and it, I mean, I, as I read through some of this manuscript of this speech, I thought, it's just, it's horrific. And if we're not regularly troubled by uh, the realities and the, the horrific seeds of racism that were sown in previous generations, often particularly by Christians, then I, if we're not regularly troubled by that, I encourage you to consider how maybe you've bought into some of the ways of thinking like the world in this area of racism and partiality. And this goes in all directions, whatever race you are, whatever ethnicity you are. Because in, in, in the midst of difficulty, I'm, I'm compelled to remember that the new earth is not going to be a nicer version of my neighborhood. It will be a place for every tongue, tribe, and people group on this planet, all skin tones, ethnicities, backgrounds, food preferences, and languages, all gathered around the throne of our Middle Eastern Jewish king. And so if you find yourself partial now to entire types of people, of whom many God has chosen to be eternally rich heirs of his kingdom, to be your brothers, your sisters in the kingdom, ask the Lord, show me in my heart. Help me to see it. Let's ask him to transform the way we think about other people who are not like us, about how we think about the poor, the homeless, those who are in prison, so that we might not be stained according to the thinking of this world, that even in the way we speak, we're careful not to lump people together based on externals, not in stereotype or an insult. Check verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Love of neighbor is fulfilling the kingdom law. Therefore, not loving breaks the law. Favoring the rich, avoiding the disabled, avoiding the poor. This is breaking all of God's law. This is why it's so serious. Have, have, I mean, we, we know tra uh, trail mix, right? Like checks mix or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, it's, you get, anybody eat the pretzels in that? I, I don't understand why they're there. They, they, they serve no purpose. It's like bag filler or something, but it's just a, something to take, grab in your hand and set over here. And so just another pretzel, set that over here, eat the trail mix. When I'm eating the whatever's remaining in the bag, I'm still eating trail mix. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't morph into something else when I take the pretzel out. Okay? It actually makes it better. It's better trail mix. If you find trail mix without pretzels, buy that trail mix and you'll save, save all the pretzel making. Um, but if you, if, if the law of God is not that way. If you break one law, you violated the person of God. The law of God is not like trail mix. It's like a pane of glass. Where if you puncture it in one place, what happens to the rest of the glass? It shatters. It shatters the glass. The breaking one law breaks them all. And if you were ever in your life unkind or hated, murdered, committed adultery, showed partiality. You didn't just toss out the pretzels. You broke the whole glass. And Christ comes to seek and to save those who are lawbreakers. 
those who are sinners like you and me. So are you looking intently into the mirror that is God's word so that you might actually see your sin? Or are you looking at it and going, I've got no sin? First John says something about when we say we have no sin, do we make God to be a liar? That we are a liar? Verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not uh, commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So he's just saying, you won't break one, you break them all. Jesus had interpreted them so, so, so succinctly that said, hey, if you, if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, you've murdered them. If you have lust in your heart towards someone, you have committed adultery. You are guilty. These are all strung together. If you've overlooked the poor, you're guilty of the same law as an adulteress, as a murderer. Whenever we mistreat someone that we deem unimportant or less than, how do we regard that sin? Do we repent? Do we even regard it as sin? It's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a big God. It's his law. It's his perfect, it's his perfect reflection of his glory. And then lastly, as we seek to crush partiality, we remember judgment and mercy. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. What's going on? This sounds, actually sounds kind of scary. Remember the sheep and the goat story in Matthew 25? There's the separation of, of true Christians from those who, who claim to be Christians. And how does Jesus distinguish between them? He's saying, so you say you're Christians, but I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty. You didn't give me a drink. I was homeless. You didn't take me in. And the goats say, when did we see you in this condition, Lord? And Jesus says, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. He's saying on judgment day, there will be no mercy for those who have shown no mercy. And you're saying, wait a minute. This doesn't sound like gospel-centeredness. This doesn't sound like grace. This sounds like only social workers go to heaven. This sounds like the social gospel. And for some of you, that may, that may cause you to, to tremble, to fear, and I hope it does sit on us a little heavy. It should. This is the way that it was presented. This is the way James is presenting it. It should be heavy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. We read this morning. And James showing the flip side, if you don't show mercy, you won't receive mercy. So we should feel the weight of that. The idea of judgment is terrifying. But the reality is our deeds speak to who we are. The fruit of our lives is, is a direct reflection back to the tree itself. So if you refuse to extend that sort of mercy to anyone else, there's a possibility you might not know mercy. If you live your life with a hatred for a particular group of people, an aversion to the poor, a disdain for the uncool, a dislike of particular races and peoples, maybe today for the first time, you just need to cry out and ask him, God, in your mercy, would you Show me your grace, your mercy, how you loved me when I was not lovely, uncool, not acceptable. A Christian lives on this mercy that is found in Christ. That's who we are. Jesus came to us as sinners. He saved us by his grace. And we are stunned by the mercy we received. Our pride gets crushed. And as a result, our lives ooze mercy. Is that who you are? Does mercy flow from your life? Or does it come out like it does for a lot of us in spurts here and there? For all of us today, remember his mercy. Remember your spiritual poverty. 
how horrible and shabby and unworthy you were to be accepted. Remember when you, like the man in the story, you came in and he greeted you. Jesus placed his arms around you and said, I'll, I'll pay your debt. I will give you my righteousness. I'll give you the best seat. I'll seat you in the heavenly places. Jesus is that impartial host. Christ is the good Samaritan that found you lying in your blood on the side of the road, that he got down off his horse. He scooped you up. He gave you his inheritance, put you in his place, gave you his name, clothed you in his righteousness, so that at the cross, we can rejoice that mercy triumphs over judgment. That mercy literally boasts over judgment. So if you've experienced that grace, that mercy, how can you ever look upon another beggar, another poor person in need of God's grace and say, not beneath me, not worth my time. Your skin color bothers me. Your handicap isn't something I want to put up with. If the incredible mercy of Christ comes to your spiritual poverty, you can't go on like that. You can't live a life that avoids the poor, that's partial to those who look and think like you. We must move to, towards those that the world does not esteem. In fact, next week, James is going to say, it's impossible for you to have faith in that gospel and not have good deeds. The faith without those works is dead. So as we reflect on his mercy today, dwell on all the merciful God has done for you. Remember how he found you, how he rescued you, how he forgave you. And as we receive his mercy, may he crush partiality in our church, in our hearts, in our lives, in our families. And may we be a glorious representation of Christ in the world. Pray with me.